0: Welcome to International Tax Bites, Designing the Perfect International Taxation System. This is a short series of episodes which focus on the design and functioning of the international tax system, each featuring a guest who has expertise in the international taxation arena. We hope you enjoy it. How are you today?
1: Uh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. So
0: we're into something that we've not done before, a, a series, aren't we? Um, we
1: are, we, and we've worked quite well. I feel like I've worked quite hard on this.
0: <laughs> long, long announced, and uh, very uh, just about coming up for delivery. A series on how to design the perfect tax ba- tax international tax system. My apologies. Um, so, who's our first guest?
1: Our guest today is Dr. Thornton Matheson, and she is a technical assistance advisor at the Fiscal Affairs Department of the International Monetary Fund, and. I'm very excited to have Thornton with us because she just has a wealth of experience, which is completely different to ours and uh, makes me quite nervous. Uh, So um, Thornton has a PhD in economics. She's got 20 years of experience in tax policy, working at the IMF, the US Department of the Treasury and the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Centre.
0: So this is... um completely bizarre that uh Thornton's agreed to come on thank you very much for that Thornton bizarre
1: in a completely fantastic way in
0: a fantastic way um we're very very grateful to have you here um the topic for today Harriet is
1: today's the global topic... tax system it is global tax capital exporters and capital importers and Thornton is going to tell us all about that we're, we're going to chip in where we feel we can do anything useful
0: we'll ask some questions right and so... we
1: won't look too stupid <laughs>
0: That's why I'm going to let you do the hard work, right? So, hello, Thornton. How are you?
2: Thank you. Very well, thank you, and 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 thank you very much for uh, having me on your show.
1: It's it's our absolute pleasure, and we are delighted. Now, before we sort of got into get into the difficult stuff, I wanted to ask you a question, which was, um, you you didn't start out in in tax and economics. You started out with a literature major. Is that right? Yes, I did. Uh, I uh, studied literature undergraduate
2: at Yale and um, but afterwards, I sort of started drifting towards economics, first working as a financial journalist in New York, my hometown, and um, then going on to study international relations at Johns Hopkins, uh, worked briefly in the hedge fund industry, uh, and then went off to get my PhD and I've been in tax policy ever since.
1: That's Excellent. Which, which answers the question: How did you end up in tax?
0: <laughs> yeah. And also, I'm really glad that you've got a literature degree. My first degree is in English and philosophy. So, um, it's a great
2: background. It, it, is. Is. it, it is. never hurts it, to know how to write, especially which that, you know uh, becomes especially apparent if you encounter someone who doesn't.
0: <laughs> how to build an analysis, right? Lawyers, lawyers don't know. How, lawyers sometimes don't have that. How to build an argument and. Uh, Outside a particularly legal way, yeah,
1: right. Okay, yes. Is, is this all the is this all the um, highfaluting nonsense that I get upset about, Graham? Is that what you're talking about?
0: Logic. Yeah, you don't like that, do you?
1: <laughs> Shut up. Right. So, um, I wanted to start by asking P- Thornton and Graham, particularly, to talk about the historic position because this is something that I'm I I'm not brilliant on. Um, so. As I understand it, the international tax system started to become established in the 1920s and developed from there. And so, Thornton, I wondered if you could sort of tell us how we got to where we are today and then talk to us about where we are today. Sure,
2: sure. Um, Well, uh, this is 2023 is actually the 100th anniversary of the current international tax system. Uh, if you measure from the original date, 1923, of the League of Nations model tax treaty, which led through um, various permutations uh, into the OECD model tax treaty, uh, which in many ways is the backbone of the current international tax system. So, and of course, now we we have the BEPS process, which is seeking to introduce major revisions into that original system, which has been eroded over the years by uh, various practices and which, you know, some parties see as uh, favoring capital exporters, developed countries, net capital exporters over developing countries, net capital importers. But there was, there was a tension uh, between those two points of view from, from the beginning.
1: So just to pause there, what's a net capital exporter? I think you said that was that was sort of a developed country. Yeah, uh, a,
2: a, 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 most high-income countries. Um, uh, they well, they have they all have both outgoing capital and incoming capital. When you think in terms of foreign investment, uh, but on the whole, the wealthy countries tend to have more foreign investment, outbound investment than inbound investment. Whereas for most lower income countries, developing and emerging markets tend to have uh, they tend to be net capital importers. So they have more foreign investment coming in than they have going out. and that's appropriate both to their level of accumulated wealth, but also to their level of development, you know, so to the extent that they tend to be capital, uh, developing countries tend to have a smaller capital stock. Uh, the returns to capital, uh, the marginal returns to capital there tend to be higher. So they uh, they need to import uh, a great deal
0: of capital. I'm I'm going to take the risk of saying something economics-based here. Um,
1: <laughs> Good luck with that. I,
0: I think, if I'm correct, that it was the effect of the two world wars that changed America from an importer to an exporter, right? That before the First World War, the US was, was a, a net importer of capital, and afterwards... It was a net exporter that cemented its position. Um,
2: that's that's quite possible. Um, I, I don't know the exact facts there.
0: Because basically all the other developed countries spent all their money. And America was the uh, the armory of the world, I think was the phrase, wasn't it? Had-
2: oh, certainly. Yes. As a relative position uh, after World War Two, um, the US, the US's rel- position relative to Europe would have risen. Yeah. 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 There you go. That's
0: all I've got to say about economics.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a lot more than I've got to say. I'm just going to listen <laughs> on that front. So two two things. I think we had the OECD model. We've now also got the UN model. Um, what what's that all about? How does that fit into the development of the international system? Um, yes, well, as I was saying, um, you know, there's been tension from the beginning
2: uh, from the League of Nations treaty between developed and developing countries. There was actually at the time, you know, a lot of north south or um, uh, developed to developing investment but much of the world in the 1920s, they, uh, the developing countries were largely still colonized. So the 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 predominant model tax treaty was reflecting the views of those net capital exporters. And the predominant concern there was double taxation. Uh, you know, there was a there was a concern that and this, you know, became especially prevalent as decolonization happened. That both the host country and the home country uh, would would tax the same income streams. So the basic job of the model tax treaties was to divide up these income streams between the the home country and the host country, or the source cons- country and the residence country—all different words for the same distinction. So um, you know what you what you get is um, the host country has the right to tax the active income. This is the active earnings, the return to equity of the um, the uh, foreign investment entity and it, within its territory. And then the home country has the predominant right to tax uh, what we call passive income, which is both items that are a deduction in the host country, such as interest and royalties. Management technical fees, that sort of thing. Uh, but then also the post tax, uh, returns to equity. So dividend distributions from the home country. These can both be taxed from, uh, sorry, from the host country. Uh, these can, these can then all be taxed by the home country. And, uh, to determine whether the host country, uh, has a right to tax a particular stream of earnings, we have the notion of the permanence s- establishment. That's sort of a minimum economic presence in the host country to establish its right to tax some of the income earned by that entity. And, um, I, you know, I should say I'm not a lawyer. Uh, so, uh, I'm not extremely well versed in the, the, the UN versus the OECD model treaties, but the UN treaty uh, reflecting for the the perspective of net capital importers or developing countries uh, tends to give broader definitions of the taxing rights of host countries vis-a-vis in contrast to home countries.
0: Yeah. So that's, uh, I am a lawyer and Harry's lawyer, and that's what we get taught exactly what you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. courses. That's it right they, they tell us that and then they say you don't need to look at the un one because we're in we're in uk or we're in france and we use the oecd one so that's the one you're going to see that's the amount yes. and talking.
2: that's that's the predominant model
0: yes yeah so just to give a, a little bit of extra colour around this historical piece um y- what you're talking about with the league of nations is between is essentially between independent nations right that's how it was set up There were systems within the colonial empires. So Britain had a model tax ordinance that was supposed to be implemented in the colonies without self-government, which worked like a... So UK, for example, had a worldwide system and all the colonies had territorial only system. That was the design of the British Empire system. And wherever wherever there was double taxation, UK won. That was essentially it. So it, it did have a system, but it was all pointing towards the metropolitan center.
2: Um. Yes, and that uh, I think is, is reflective of um, how the original architecture was very much set up. Uh, most of the net capital exporters at the time uh, did have uh, what we call, uh, economists usually refer to as a worldwide system Meaning that home countries, uh, the net capital exporters would tax uh, the foreign earnings of their resident multinational enterprises or MNEs, giving a credit for any foreign taxes paid in the host country. Right. Uh, so there was a residual layer of taxation over and above whatever was paid uh, to the host country. Unless, of course, if the host country rate were higher, it's usually limited by the home country tax rate. So if the host country tax rate were higher, then there would likely be no residual tax due in the home country.
1: Um, the, the, top up the, system,
0: it's like a credit system you pay. Yeah,
1: so I think that this is also what we see with unilateral relief within domestic legislation, isn't it? Effectively. Yeah.
0: So um when I was researching this. Researching is probably a big word, but when I was when I was looking at this to before we, before we met, Thornton, I looked at your paper, which you wrote with uh, with with some other people for the IMF, territorial versus wild worldwide corporate taxation, and in that you discuss that there's been a shift from this worldwide system towards a territorial system. I think for all of the G7 except the US, I think you said, um, yeah. Now. Harriet and I are lawyers and we talked about this just before before we started recording Harriet and I are lawyers and we still think of the UK as having a worldwide system um, because there's a legacy piece underneath if you don't have all of the if there's no treaty if there's no um unilateral relief if there's no this if there's no that then you know you, you, you don't tick any of the boxes you end up with worldwide but you were saying that de jour and uh, de facto are often the same results even though um they may the form may differ so what has driven that change away from worldwide for countries like the UK for France for Germany and why is that different from the US
2: right well yes yeah, so thank you thank you for citing my paper with with Vicky Perry and and Chandar we actually wrote that right um or we started writing it right after in 2009 both the U.K. and Japan, which um, had, along with the U.S., been sort of the last worldwide system holdouts, converted their system. Now, as you point out, de jure, they may have maintained uh, worldwide systems. And in fact, many of the developed countries who uh, are viewed as having long-established territorial systems, in other words, they do not tax the, the foreign earnings of their resident multinationals, the active earnings, they exempt them. Uh, de jure, many of those countries actually still have worldwide systems, but either through treaty provisions or other types of agreements or practices, uh, they effectively do not tax the foreign earnings of their resident Multinationals, so it was kind of a big deal in 2009 when both Japan and the UK, the last two remaining worldwide major uh, capital exporters with worldwide systems, uh, shifted their practice towards exemption of foreign earnings. And yes, that that just left the U.S., uh, my country, uh, as sort of the sole holdout with um, not only a, a well. Uh, with a high rate worldwide system uh, all along. Ireland, uh, of course, has had a worldwide system. But if you have a very low tax rate, again, it doesn't really matter if you have a worldwide system because your foreign tax credits are likely to zero out any domestic liability. Uh, but the, the U.S. Uh, maintained its uh, worldwide system with a 35% tax rate, which wow. uh, at that point, was well above um the global average corporate income tax rates and um so- as to why we hung, hung on to that system i give a variety of uh reasons but i think there's been a there's been a very strong uh constituency here really on on both sides of the aisle whereby we consider it unfair to our domestic industry uh, to tax foreign earnings at a lower rate, you know, uh, as most industrialized countries, you know, the last several decades have seen quite a bit of de-industrialization, which has had some pretty serious social effects. And, um, you know, so a lot of jobs moving overseas or moving to developing countries. And I think for, for better, for worse, rightly or wrongly, uh, you know, there's been this this strong commitment to taxing foreign earnings, and 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 you saw this even after our twenty the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which made radical reforms to the U.S. corporate tax. You know, we brought the rate down from 35 percent to 21 percent, the federal rate. There are still uh, additional state level
0: taxes. So many layers. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, you know, when, once you factor in the state level taxes, we're at about 26 percent.
0: Wow. It's 40 percent aggregate before.
2: Um. Well, these state level taxes are deductible from federal taxes. So it was so. So the higher the federal rate, sort of the bigger the dedu- deduction you get for state. So it was right around 40 um, I
0: believe. There'd be because people in the streets burning cars where I come from if the corporate tax rate was forty percent. Um Ooh, yeah. So but is 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 the so the, the change to territorial across the, the big economies is that driven by a desire to basically buy in is that a policy decision, a more entrepreneurial buy into the developing world, let's maintain our position by owning bits of the developing world, or is it about globalization just simply increasing making it easier for capital flows or is it or is the US just standing alone because it can because it has such a dominant position within the world economy
2: well uh let's talk first about everybody else um so yes um uh after you know uh after world war 2 Policy was kind of driven by uh, the rise of multinationals and, and, and with that, you know, the increasing capital mobility, uh, and, and, and the development of global, uh, value chains, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's an increasing competition amongst both developed and developing countries both for inward investment um, from MNEs. But then, of course, for the developed countries, they also have, you know, resident multinationals who are kind of their national champions who they want to help. So, you know. I think the rationale, one rationale given by the Japan by Japan and the UK was simplification. Uh, But it's not clear to me, I mean, that that, that's such a benefit to corporations, corporations. um, And I'm sure you know this as lawyers, uh, they they. They tend to ro- do rather well with complexity.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Vodafone. Uh, but,
0: it, it, simplicity is not an issue for Vodafone. To mention them.
2: exactly, exactly, and because they they have so much legal firepower, they can generally come out ahead in a complex environment. But but what moving to territorial does do uh, for the resident multinationals. Of uh developed countries is it enables them to compete more easily on the global stage. Most foreign uh, direct investment there is not greenfield. it's actually m a. so it's people buying existing assets in foreign markets um, not exclusively obviously, but but that's the lion's share of it. so if you uh if you're subject to a, a worldwide regime, it's quite possible that you're facing a ta- heavier tax burden um on your foreign investment than um than multinationals from countries that do not have that layer of taxation. Right. And I think that's that's the basic reason why many developed countries went territorial. So it's a ta- uh, it's a tax competition move. It's an out yes, for out outbound investment for the you know for their <laughs> multinationals.
0: Come and establish um, national in my country so that um because I have a I have a favorable regime for foreign income,
2: exactly exactly <laughs> and and the u s again it was a was a bit of an outlier um and and not because our multinationals did not complain bitterly about our high rate worldwide tax system, but uh, as you're I'm sure you're aware, uh, they had some very creative ways of of making it work for them
0: well I don't- um. Ireland's very rich as a result, right?
2: <laughs> uh, Ireland and 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 many other jurisdictions um, around the world, but um, you know, uh, uh, one one major feature which was not specific to the U.S. It actually comes from sort of the the separate the, the the base the fact that the international tax system is based on accounting rules. Um, so even if you're taxing your multinationals on their foreign earnings, uh, they don't record that income until it's distributed as a dividend, and this is, you know, what we call deferral. And as I'm sure you're aware, um, you know, the U.S. multinationals just they they just didn't repatriate; uh, they they piled up, you know, a huge stockpile of of foreign earnings prior to the TCJA. Yeah, um, and so that was that was one feature of the international si- system that they were able to use. It feels Another, like,
0: uh, sorry, it, it just let me just no, okay. it feels like almost like um, the US doesn't have a very well developed anti-avoidance regime. I know it led the way in so many ways. It invented uh, c- control foreign companies uh, rules, it invented several of the anti-avoidance rules that we have. But if um, US multinationals can achieve these results. Um, yeah, I think it might be difficult for a UK-based multinational to achieve the same result. And it, it is that maybe a function of the fact that they've moved to territoriality, so that so so their anti-avoidance is more aggressive. Almost like you can you can have this here's my tax competition, but I must guard what's left mm. uh, in a much stronger way. So maybe the US has actually really got a territorial base because there's so many ways to work within the worldwide system to neutralise it would that be fair
2: well of course we no longer have that system All right. uh
0: since since tcja
2: but yes um you know many scholars compared what we had prior to tcja uh to a to a de facto territorial system but um uh it uh it was a, it was a, it was de, if de facto territorial system was was some pretty serious distortions um one of them being you know this this huge stockpile of foreign earnings, yeah um
1: so just to jump back to um tax competition and to introduce a different form of tax competition, and this is uh corporate tax rates, which we have touched upon, and obviously which is sort of one of the massive developments since the 1920s that overlines underlines underlines the beps project so and what we have there i think isn't it is that corporate income tax rates have dropped over say the last 40 or 50 years they've just gone down pretty much globally
2: yes absolutely and and that um that so called race to the bottom as it's often called um uh is sort of one of the most salient features of the international tax competition uh, that we've seen with the increase, you know, the rise of the multinational and the, the increasing uh, mobility of, of capital investment. And it it's happened uh, well, really both developed and developing countries um, try to do the same thing in response to, global tax competition. They just kind of had different methods. The developed countries um, did, uh, they would cut their rates and then they would often broaden their bases, for example, by reducing uh, depreciation allowances. Um, And this actually protected their corporate tax income quite well. Whereas uh, developing countries, they often maintained higher rates particularly in Latin America and, and Africa. Uh, but they would offer very generous, often very generous tax incentives to foreign multinationals inv- investing in their country. So often complete tax holidays with regard to the corporate income tax. And then there might be you know various tax incentives with regard to indirect taxes as, as well. And what both of these strategies do is basically shift the corporate tax burden from from the less the more mobile types of investment, which is uh, the, the multinational investment, the ones that can pick up and and go elsewhere, to the home country base, the domestic companies, which um, are usually less profitable, more marginal than the multinationals. Um, so low tax rates particularly favor, Highly profitable firms, because you know every every point decrease in the tax rate is on is on profits um, across the board.
0: Yeah. So, just Harry, you remember when we talked to Dominic Sandbrook? We did an episode with a historian called Dominic Sandbrook Thompson, who and we 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 tracked the history of the UK tax system from 1945 to the current day. And we talked then, didn't we, Harry, about a broadening of the base and a lowering of taxes to spread the burden further because the UK personal tax system has changed in almost exactly the way that you described for the corporate yes. tax system there, that it's gone from high rates on high earners, lowering those rates and spreading the burden across the people who are less able to leave, um set up complicated structures, but frankly, low-hanging fruit, right? Uh, uh, a, a guy who works in a coal mine paying pay-as-you-earn withholding tax on his wages is much easier to tax than the duke of wherever yeah
1: Westminster. go on say it Graham no
0: I, I'm not going to say Westminster um, that so it's 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 not just the corporate tax system that's changed like that the personal taxation system has changed like that and if you look at the writings of Steinmo he's he he follows that with um or he ties that to an increase in expenditure. Because the state has taken on a lot more, so it needs a more uh, democratised almost, in a sense, because everybody's now part of the system, a more democratised tax take. I think it was in- it's just interesting to see that that effect, what we talked about before, is mirrored in global corporate tax systems.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um- And I I think that is interesting. The other interesting trend that um, I have to, I have to tell everybody, Thornton very kindly, I think having an inkling of of just quite how lost I would be in in an economics, in an economics podcast, um, sent us some slides and I'm looking at one of them, which is entitled Race to the Bottom. And it shows that even though globally corporate income tax rates have come down, what we can actually see is that they're still higher in low-income countries than in advanced economies or emerging market economies. Is it? I think that I think I'm reading that graph right. but yes, absolutely. Um, and um,
2: yeah, so there was there was a divergence of strategies with regard to tax competition depending upon income. Um, uh, the high-income countries were most likely to lower the rate and broaden the base. And, uh, the higher income countries are, are generally much less dependent on corporate income tax revenue than developing countries because, and, and specifically because they, they have well developed personal income taxes. Now, Graham, you're absolutely right. The same thing was kind of even individual, uh, capital was also becoming more mobile in, in uh, you know, personal investment capital. Uh, so we saw the rise of the dual income tax, um, among other things, but, you know, developed countries could rely more heavily on their personal income tax, whereas that tax is very weak in
0: developing countries. The but the that's it that's a very interesting graph that race to the bottom one, Thornton. But what's the um is the is that higher rate mirrored because I'm guessing it's the headline rate, right? Is that higher rate mirrored in the effective rate, which has become so important since the in, as you know, pillar two has become an issue. We talk about effective rates much more than we used to. We used to talk about headline rates. Is that graph mirrored with headline rate uh, effective rates, or do we see the lower income countries collecting at a lower rate than the than the higher income countries, even though they have a higher headline rate?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, again, um, many developing countries uh, offered very generous tax incentives, uh, not across the board, as you would see it in developed countries, which developed countries tend to have many fewer tax incentives and they're legally based, you know, so they'll offer, if they offer accelerated depreciation, it'll be to, uh, you know, anyone can act who qualifies under the law can access it. Whereas in developing countries, this was much more, tax incentives are much more often discretionary um, or, you know, contractual. So they would be offered specifically to multinationals. So yes, you know, when we get, uh, when we get to BEPS and the effective rate under BEPS very often uh the effective rate of multinational subsidiaries in developing countries is well below what you might assume given uh whatever the uh the standard corporate income tax rate in that country is and and indeed a much a motivation of the design of of beps pillar 2 is to um is to help developing countries say no in effect or um uh more constructively to uh, to, to redesign their tax incentives in such a way that that um, they work better
0: so that that i mean what you just described there sounds very like the definition of harmful tax pra- tax practice in the 1999 oecd report opacity of how it how it works it's ring fenced for foreign or non-resident uh, individuals or corporates um it's sort of getting close to it. I'm not saying it is a harmful tax practice, but if, if, if Jersey did that or yeah. Guernsey did that, then it would come under the radar. It, it, do you find that there's more tolerance of tax competition in that way of a developing country? Because there's better reason for it almost because they are a developing country. Do you see a difference in the way tax havens and in inverted commas are treated and developing countries are treated?
1: Um, Sorry. While I, while we give Thornton a moment to think about that, I'm going to tell Graham off for using the expression tax haven.
0: That's why I put commas around <laughs> it. I definitely...
1: <laughs> Investment In right. hubs. In
0: In yeah, f- finance centers.
1: I'm not sure that's right.
2: much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my understanding of the term harmful tax practices is that it tends to be applied. I mean, yes, it's it it's definitely a form of base erosion. You know, all the the the, the various generous tax incentives um that are offered by developing countries. but um, I think you know they, they they don't they don't get a lot of heat for it uh, in the way that developed countries and or um investment hubs may, with some of their tax regimes that are specifically designed to lure investment or their income because precisely because you know developing countries are developing countries yeah uh they do want to grow they do want to raise their in their income uh and and this is you know i think this is uh widely viewed as a uh, a reasonable practice
0: right. um so, on their part so if your jurisdiction's fair. in the top five for gdp it's a different story than if you're in the bottom 10 because yeah you need to feed people, right? Okay. Um,
1: also, something that I took from just the language that you used there, and I'm going to be very lawyerish about this. It seems to me that possibly there's almost there's both an element of intent and an element of 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 need if you see what I mean. so there's an element you have to intend it to be harming somebody else, and it's much less okay, I think, as Graham's identified if you don't need it and i think I think possibly Graham and I have quite a an unusual perspective because while we're both uh english lawyers we're also both qualified in different small low tax high gdp jurisdictions (laughs) if i can put it that way very carefully and so one of the things that i think we find very interesting is the um the sort of almost universal approach to those types of jurisdictions and how how um how they are perceived differently to say uh, lower income countries doing exactly the same thing
0: yeah, so it's it, it's interesting it's an interesting thought. where is the boundary? how successful can a developing country be before it starts to draw flak um I noticed that Botswana's on on an EU gray list, isn't it I don't I', I never understood why Botswana's on that list, but it, it's there for a reason. So it's sort of like in 1960, Gibraltar was quite poor. It was mostly um, uh, people worked in the dockyard. There was no finance center whatsoever. Um, then it changed. Well, it, it didn't actually need to change. It's all its base law was fine, but it brought into in, 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 into into play a law which could be recognised as what what lawyers know as an IBC, an international business company. And then it you know that sort of took the economy took off. And then you get to the point. Well, hold on. Where is it that it starts to become too rich to be a developing country anymore and have a need rather than a, um, a, 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 if you see what I mean, not to be forgiven for the base erosion that you identified? That's quite an interesting thought. Where's the, How rich are they allowed to be before they have to change?
1: And we're not expecting you to come up with a figure. <laughs> well, no, but I mean...
2: Um, I, this is it's an interesting question that you raised. Uh, uh, and I haven't really thought about it very much before. But I mean, developing countries offering tax incentives to get real investment, I think, is qualitatively different than, um, say, financial hub offering, um, you know, saying have an offshore investment, an offshore companies regime in so far as there they're not so much looking for real investment there may be positive side effects in terms of you know uh employment etc as you know but basically what they're trying to do is lure tax base away from other countries and 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 to facilitate profit shifting so uh i do i do think that there's a qualitative difference uh, and you could say this about, you know, say the patent box regimes offered by many European countries as well. And uh, you know, certainly the US checked the box, um, although um I think it was introduced for, for a sound reason and, and and not deliberately to facilitate income shifting. It, it it did get used that way. Um, and we did not repeal it. So I I think there is a qualitative difference, but also um. You know, as the IMF has maintained throughout much of the technical assistance that we provide to developing countries, uh, both, uh, both in the mining and petroleum sectors and also uh, more generally in the corporate sector, you know, the, the harm of, of these generous, uh, profit-based, uh, tax incentives that developing countries feel compelled to offer uh, in their negotiation with multinationals trying to attract investment. Much of that harm is really to themselves insofar as studies show that a lot of uh profit-based tax incentives. And when I say profit-based, I'm talking about tax holidays and reduced tax rates in distinction to say expenditure-based uh tax incentives, such as accelerated depreciation. Much of this is seen as redundant. I mean, companies, uh, would often invest anyway, but because they have so much negotiating leverage against any particular developing country, you know they're able to receive these these extremely generous tax incentives, which really undermine the revenue of the host country.
0: And um, so, so, so it's so, like sorry, the, the decision is made in headquarters. Let's go to I don't know wherever, um, go and get me a tax break. Not let's make a list of who will give us tax breaks. Let's go to one of those. I think that's that's essentially what the the process that you just described. That the the reason to move to the developing country exists, and then leverage is sought after the almost after the decision to relocate is made.
2: Well, it goes industry by industry. Some industries really are, uh, you know, uh, a bit more indifferent about where they go. You know, purely export oriented industries uh, that don't require special materials or a skilled labor force that, you know, they, they truly are highly mobile. Uh, Then other industries such as, you know, certainly the natural resource industries who are exploiting, you know, local uh, mining, petroleum deposits. Um, It's all going to depend upon, you know, assets that a particular country holds also telecoms companies, you know, they're exploiting the domestic market so there um uh there's a much stronger attachment to a particular economy but i think you know there's always kind of a credible threat that a multi- multinational has to not come and it's hard for developing countries to really know um the the profitability of a particular investment and so you know i think they often don't have very strong bargaining power
0: so do you do you see as an economist that um or just as a human being um ta- the tax the tax competition that we see today is really a function or a consequence of globally mobile capital working within a 100 year old international tax system and it's it's a necessary consequence of that and that and therefore I know we are re- reviewing the t- like beps is reforming the system but is this necessarily the consequence of the lowering of the freedom of movement of capital uh, barriers you know you can move money can move quickly between countries does that then lead to because that creates a disconnect between the home country of Vodafone and where its money can go
2: well um yeah i i mean i think uh, when you have you know fixed actors competing for for a mobile base it uh it does lead to this type of competition it could lead to other types of competition such as you know infrastructure countries could compete on infrastructure they could compete on skilled labor force the the as you know as difficult it is, as it is for them to give away revenue, it's actually, I think, a bit easier to uh, to compete on a tax basis than it is to yeah. compete on a real basis.
0: So competing on investment um, takes 20 years to get ready for, but you can change your tax rate tomorrow.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and I think with the the BEPS 2.0 Pillars Pillars one, well, particularly Pillar Two, which is um, becoming swiftly becoming a reality. Uh, whereas pillar one, who knows? Um, <laughs> it doesn't seem imminently uh, likely to take effect.
0: Janet Yellen um, but, the other day, didn't she? Janet Yellen said, uh, "We're not ready and we're not minded to sign this yet." The multilateral, process, yes, it was like two yeah. days, wasn't it?
2: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, um, basically, you know, given that sixty percent of the uh, the the countries you need you need the the um the jurisdictional parents of of at least 60 percent of the in-scope multinationals to agree and given that the the u.s has more than 40 percent the u.s is kind of uh, sine qua non for pillar one right yeah. and um uh, given, I think given, well, i'm sure you're aware of the political situation here yeah. now but yeah yeah so
1: before we get too technical um i i i just say we're getting into BEPS now and really BEPS is where we are that's the modern position but I wondered if we could before we do that if we could just talk about sort of the options for international tax systems and in particular so what we had you've talked we've had the League of Nations sort of model treaty which was adopted and then we had this huge proliferation of double tax treaties so bilateral yes. between two countries um yes. and there are there are some problems with that. Uh, but we're now moving towards the use of multilateral arrangements, um which I think from a legal perspective are much more complicated. And you and I've written about that, haven't we, Graham. um but they are much more complicated from a legal perspective. We're obviously moving that way anyway with the with the possible exception of the the u s again. um but in in those well, I mean, we are. In those circumstances. No, I, love,
0: I love the way the US, you know, I, like, in some ways I'm really jealous.
1: Marching to the beat of a different drum.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> It's it's like the British Empire in 1860. Whatever. I'm not going to put my name in stamps. <laughs> Everybody knows the stamps come from Britain.
1: <laughs> I'd say, but from an economic perspective, what what is sort of, why why have we ended up moving towards this multilateral position, do you think?
2: Well, I think um, just looking at the BEPS pro- pro- project broadly, um, you know, it, the people were looking at the race to the bottom uh, in corporate tax rates. They were seeing, you know, corporate revenue fall, particularly in, in developing countries and the, you know, sort of widespread um Base erosion, you know, uh, highly profitable In, in the U.S., you know, there's always been a lot of press around highly profitable multinationals having very low effective tax rates. Um, and, uh, that's, not, that's uh, not
1: just the U.S. The, the popular press loves that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Loves yeah.
2: yeah. it everywhere. And I, and I think that's what's been driving this, you know, this multilateral approach to, to addressing it. And, and really it has to be, you know, multilateralism is kind of the answer to tax competition because tax competition is based on, you know, every, you know, it's a, it's a game theory problem. It's based on the idea that Every country does what's best for it, um, assuming no other cooperation with any other country, and that's you know that's the the gist of tax competition, right? And we saw this um, you know this inevitable march toward lower tax uh, tax rates under that system. So multilateralism is just sort of the only answer. But the outcome of multilateralism, you know, that could take a variety of different forms. BEPS 1.0, the first phase, was really just doubling down on the existing largely source-based system but tightening up various provisions. And then with BEPS 2.0, we've got, you know, pillar 1 is a destin is what we call a, a destination-based approach, so you take the, you know, the the consolidated global revenues of the largest multinationals and um allocate allocate a slice of them to countries on the basis of you know where those multinationals have third party sales so you know the the rationale for that and and you could have various types of destination based systems not just pillar 1 type which is what we call formulary apportionment yeah um uh,
0: just... but the whole
2: idea is is that that you know Sales are a lot less mobile than investment and employment, right? But, but the um, thing- and then pillar two is is sort of back to the future. It's like, let's go back to those worldwide tax systems. And if everybody does it, there will be no incentive for um, individual countries to cheat.
0: Yeah. So, But just to go back to pillar one for a second there, the problem with pillar one is that, It looks like what you just described, but because it only top slices an element of the excess profits, the the destination country gets such a small share. It doesn't feel like it's actually really – it feels like a SOP to avoid Mm. digital service taxes, Mm. like they've given just enough to get the deal over the line, but it's not actual. (coughs) the formula isn't really just – I think if it does does come in, there will be pressure almost immediately to revise that formula because it's just not, it doesn't get to where it needs to be, I don't think.
1: Again, before we dig into the minutiae of BEPS, there were two other points that I just wanted to sort of ask you about. Uh, The first one is this. So presumably one of the huge benefits of multilateralism is that once you get sort of like a head of steam on it, once you've got so many people involved, actually, it's much much easier to pick up the remaining sort of non non joiner inners, with the exception of the US, Um and because you've got you've got sort of like a political force as a block that you wouldn't have individually. And I think we have seen we saw that sort of with the EU when they started on harmful tax practices with their harmful tax group because it was the EU doing it. So a big chunk of countries, it was much harder for places like Jersey, Gibraltar, the Isle of Man, Guernsey to sort of push back. Whereas if they'd had one jurisdiction doing that, that would have been much much easier. Because they'd say, well never mind about UK investment. We've still got French investment. Let's sort of focus there. So that was that was my First point that I wanted to put to you and the second one that I wanted to put you to you which is sort of allied as well presumably with one big caveat multilateralism is much better for those jurisdictions in a weaker negotiating position because sort of everybody gets the same so say the UK can't go and negotiate a double tax treaty with let's say Botswana because we've mentioned it already that is significantly different from the model just because it's the only way for Botswana to get a DTT with them if if that was what they wanted for example and those are the, that, I mean, that's I'm not saying that's what's happened but that's also a benefit of multilateralism potentially
0: unless of course you've got 36 countries all sitting at the top deciding the agenda
1: I said there was one big caveat to that <laughs> sorry so I'm I've sort of Talk that at you, but um, I, I don't know how much you agree with that, or where you say that I've got the wrong end of the stick, which is entirely possible.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I think, um, uh, I think you're right. Uh, the more of a bandwagon effect that you have, the less, um, the less potentially profitable it is to ignore the whole thing or to be a holdout. And I think you know the way that Pillar Two is specifically designed will have a very strong effect on uh, getting any remaining countries uh, to participate.
0: Bermuda's implementation is specifically designed to stop other people taking the money. Sorry? Bermuda's implementation is exactly a response to that effect. Their, Their corporation tax that they've just about to introduce is basically, this is triggered if anybody else taxes you and you owe me 15%. So it's yes. designed specifically to stop, to take the money somebody else would take, right. which is the design element that you're talking about, right?
2: Right. The QD, yes, the the QDMTT, the Qualified Domestic Minimum Top-Up Tax, uh, quite a mouthful. Um, uh, there's very little incentive for a country not to introduce it. Uh, because if they do, um, uh, likely it will simply be imposed by either the home country would impl- impose an IIR, an income inclusion rule. Or if, if that doesn't happen, then, um, there's also the, the UTPR, the under profits rule, uh, which can be imposed anywhere that, you know, said multinational that's getting a free ride in some non-participating jurisdiction, um, any, any other country can effectively tax that income by by imposing a UTPR on the affiliated entity in its own jurisdiction. So there are very strong uh, incentives based on the design of pillar two uh, for for everybody to be on board and to implement at least a QDMTT. And we do see many uh so so you know countries not formally known as uh low tax jurisdictions doing just that a major uh concern for developing countries even those who do plan to introduce a QDMTT, you know it doesn't make sense for them not to because they won't be providing a tax benefit uh if they don't to the to the for the investment but you know the the countries, you know, they were they were offering tax incentives for a reason to to get this investment. And even if even countries that are impl- that plan to implement QDMTTs, they're very afraid of losing the investment as a result. Now, we we think that that might not happen based on these studies that I said, where you know a lot of tax incentives are redundant. But that's very that's a very real concern for many developing countries under Pillar Two.
1: And um, so I think. I'm 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 looking at looking at all the points that I wanted to tick off. And I think we have got into BEPS quite nicely. Graham, do you just want to do 90, 30 to 90 seconds on what BEPS is for anyone who's completely
0: missed this? Wow. 30 seconds on um, on the biggest international tax reform in the history of the yeah, world.
1: Come on, I've, I've got faith.
0: Um, <laughs> so basically it, BEPS has, is a process. That's, I mean, that in itself is a headline. BEPS is a process, um, it's not an event. So it's um, started in 1999 with the harmful tax competition, a growing global problem. I think was the title of the the, the report by the OECD, uh, which identified harmful tax practices and developed the idea around uh, that, that that the increase in what we've variously called. Uh, low tax jurisdictions investment hubs whatever attracting um, business to themselves by offering uh, beneficial regimes and it focused originally on uh, the sort of parallel economy type regime that ring-fenced foreign investment away from uh, domestic uh, taxation because a lot of those small island uh, small jurisdiction regimes used to have like a basically a tax-free system for non-residents and a and a taxable system for residents. That so that became they became labelled as harmful tax re, uh, tax regimes, tax practices, and that therefore they were closed. They they were reduced. The EU put a lot of pressure on various countries. They've introduced economic substance rules. There are lots of different tracks going on. But what we're talking about now in pillar one and pillar two are um, pillar one is a method of allowing source. In a non-technical sense, countries, i.e., where the customers are, uh, to to tax an element of the excess profits. I can never remember these figures. I think it's over ten percent.
1: Yes, I think yeah.
0: so. any yeah. profit over ten percent on a service, digitally delivered service, um, there is a tax. An element of that is given to the to the to the customer based the destination. Um, with pillar two, it's a, it's a, a rule, a, a set of three interlocking um rules which are supposed to guarantee that um multinational enterprises will pay 15% on all of their income over the entire globe uh, which we have i think that I think this is I think we've done two episodes on pillar 2 already yeah. over time right and we've mentioned it lots and lots of times so regular listeners should should know that that's essentially where we're going but beps not only that there's 16 action points about information exchange and changing transfer pricing rules and all that. But essentially, BEPS is designed to stop um, clever, in inverted commas, tax planning that is artificial and does not follow the economic substance. That's BEPS point, uh, 1.0. And BEPS 2.0 is a step further to ensure there's global, in a sense, global harmonization of multinational enterprise taxation.
1: But what does what what does what does pillar two not do, Graham?
0: It doesn't impose a single unified global tax rate. <laughs> you do not need to any ministers that are listening, you do not need to put your domestic tax rate up as a result of Pillar Two. I'm just saying
1: So now now Graham's sort of just given us the, the whistle stop tour. Bon, I wanted to ask you, how does how do how do how does BEPS address the tension between capital exporters and capital importers interests? Well, I think the most obvious way is the QDMTT.
2: Um, I mean, if you look at earlier drafts of pillar two, uh, the, uh, I believe the, the IIR, the, the tax imposed by the home country,
1: uh, okay. so
2: the worldwide tax, uh, was at the top of the pecking order. And this was, um, <clears throat> this was opposed by developing country members of the inclusive framework. And the upshot was that the top of the pecking order now in terms of who gets to tax activity first is occupied by the QDMTT and the QDMTT is uh, imposed by the, ho- the host jurisdiction. So the jurisdiction where a particular uh, activity uh, is taking place. And only, only if there is no QDMTT can the home country then tax with the IIR. And if neither of those taxes, uh, is in place, then a third jurisdiction can impose the UTPR. And the UTPR actually a very, you know, strategically a very, very important component of the whole thing because it acts as, you know, an incentive for both, uh, countries, uh, to adopt IIRs and QDMTTs. Stick, but,
0: right it's the stick isn't it um to to it it feels very it's well it's very very aggressive for a start it's a, that that is the the, the 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 radical element of this
1: it's it's certainly got the most practitioner pushback well pushback most practitioner whinging i would say maybe <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah no it's i mean uh you know
1: i'm an economist
2: not a lawyer but but uh It'll be it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out in practice.
0: It's a so it feels I'm a, I'm an old fa- I'm, in Gibraltar we think about sovereignty a lot right because we're subject to a territorial dispute and I'm not going to talk about that but <laughs> um it, it's it feels like a sovereignty issue. Your taxing choices within your democratic system are not good enough, so I'm going to take this money. Um, that's what it feels like to, to to people who worry about things like that
1: but but of course what what it does is it's the it's the ultimate we- weapon it's the ultimate tool that's probably a better expression by which this multilateral arrangement says it doesn't matter where you go you're going to end up paying the same tax so be yeah. sensible
0: that's its effect
1: yeah uh, well um, is is it is that its effect
0: well, i think it will be won't it because all of the multinational if you put a multinational in a low tax jurisdiction You've basically got to select non UTPR jurisdictions for your subsidiaries. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So, and there won't be any, well, there will be some non UTPR jurisdictions because it's going to be very complicated to implement. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult. I think the smaller jurisdictions are going to shy away from it. But let's face it, if you want to do business globally, you will have something in France or the US if the US decides to play or uh, Germany or UK. There will be one that, that, that will bring it into play. And then therefore everybody has to do the long one that begins with Q. I can never remember which order. It it. E- yeah. mm- <laughs> um, or or IIR, which is essentially just a, a beefed up CFC rule, right? Yes.
2: Uh- no, and I think I, I think you know enforcing a UTPR is a bit dicey as well because effectively what a country would be doing uh they would be they would be taxing the multinational uh but they would be taxing the multinational by imposing the, li- the tax liability on their local subsidiary uh yeah. that with, is within their jurisdiction
0: i've never um, there's, the-
2: there's, there's risk involved with that
0: yeah i've never understood why the mne just doesn't let it go bust and force it against my subsidiary i don't care it only employs two people <laughs> and and then just walk away it's not gonna be effective if they can do that. But that's about the economic realities of their structure, right? What what
2: both the UTPR and, and Pillar One um, are driving at is um again, you know, this, this notion, uh this sort of accounting notion of, of a multinational as a series of distinctive companies as opposed to a consolidated entity. And and um, you know allowing for deferral allowing for the, tr- the 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 separate taxation of entities even if they're 100% owned uh that's you know that's a that's a critical component to tax competition and um so both the, the formulary apportionment approach and the pillar 2 approach um are sort of driving you know sort of poking at that myth that that we're not dealing with one company we're dealing with A bunch of you know separate uh though somehow affiliated entities
0: that's a really interesting thought that's not crossed my mind to be honest that it that it breaks that concept of a consolidated group into bits um i'm gonna go think about that (laughs) 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 um okay so
1: i i i have two i have two more questions graham i'm sorry i'm sorry go Um, ahead ahead.
0: i was just going to ask you what you wanted to ask next
1: (laughs) so in terms of what we have with beps at the moment and particularly with with pillar two do you think there are outstanding concerns for the capital exporters and the capital importers or do you think they're pretty much addressed by this approach have we have we by we I mean the Oecd um fixed this at the first well not the first but fixed it now <laughs>
2: um no I don't I don't think things are Fixed. I think BEPS 2.0 is really interesting. I mean, the way I think about b- both BEPS 1.0 and 2.0 is they, they've kind of taken the smorgasbord approach to international tax reform. I mean, we're part source-based, part de- uh, destination-based, and part residence-based, you know. something We couldn't make up our minds, so
1: we decided to do all three. Do you know um, what? As a lawyer, I have to say that sounds like an excellent approach from the
2: perspective <laughs> of lawyers. <laughs> So and I'm, and it may it, it may create a, an equilibrium, um, or you know, parts of it may survive, others not so much. And um, uh, in another few decades, we have another deeper round of reforms.
0: It's it seems almost to be sort of working within the conceptual framework of the original League of Nations report, ex, Committee of Experts report. It's because you you listed three um, economic connections there, um, three. Tests of economic connection, which were residence, uh, source, and destination, right? So yeah. basically, we've taken the existing system of residence and source and added a third economic connector. Um, so it's not, it's not actually a root and branch. It's an, it's like an addition to, uh, and a modification rather than in a whole new system. When Harry asked us be- asked you before, what would you know? How would you how would you deal with this if? Um, if you had a blank piece of paper, um, I didn't get a chance to say, but as, as I've said repeatedly, if we just taxed at the place where the economic activity occurs and took residents out of the equation, a lot of the planning, a lot of the problem of, you know, put your directors in a in, in, a, in, a, in a in a hot island somewhere and say that that's where the where the residence is, that all drops away. It's not necessarily easy to administer, it would be very difficult to administer, but it's it seems to be that there's all there's there's an inbuilt problem in the original system. In the
1: so
0: usual aim, concept of residence.
1: My aim over these um over this series of of podcasts is to get people like Thornton, who are far more intelligent than me, to explain to you and change your—not to explain to you, to change your mind as on 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 what you think is the perfect international tax
0: system. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll I'll say that sentence again.
1: Uh, really, because I've never heard it before. Yeah. Neither, neither of the people listening. <laughs> so. So Thornton, what I think what I want, the question that I want to ask you to end on, unless you've got anything else that you want to talk about before I do, is this, uh, which is, if there was, if if there was one thing that above all other important factors would, would be within a perfect international tax system, what would it be, particularly to sort of balance the needs of those competing groups, in your view? Wow. um,
2: <laughs> it's hard to think about a perfect international tax system. Um I I must disagree with with Graham though that you I know, disagree uh, with him as well. So you're in a, you're source-based, a purely source-based system, which is largely what we have with a few exceptions like like the US. I think, you know, an atomistic, you know, where where countries um are, you know, basically isolated setting their tax policy in 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 um separation from all other countries, I think I think that's brought us where we are. and that that's what specifically what was behind the race to the bottom. So I do think that some some sort of international coordination is important to stem that that pressure. I think you know with the the return to residence based, I think most um, developed countries are fine with it, uh, even though if everybody implements a QDMTT, they won't really collect much revenue. But I think as long as as long as, um, you know, everybody else is doing it and their multinationals are therefore not disadvantaged, they seem to uh, to be fine with going that route. But the destination based the new bit uh because the source based and the residence based are as you say uh, you know they were there from the beginning uh and that was the basic tension you know that's specifically sort of about the rise of technology which we haven't much t- talked much about but um you know the rise of the digital economy makes it very difficult to tell, you know, where the activity is actually going on. Uh, It's not, you know, where you have a factory and where you have workers. I mean, it all just kind of takes place in the stratosphere. Uh, And that's really what the destination-based principle helps you address. So maybe for, you know, maybe for right now, a smorgasbord approach is the right way because um, we don't quite know. And to do a true destination-based system uh well formulary apportionment you know that requires very heavy multilateral cooperation which um you know for in if we were to have for example pillar one a more comprehensive pillar one and that was the international corporate tax system I mean that would that clearly would require much higher levels of coordination than
0: it'd have to be like that'd have to be a single unified authority right?
2: Yeah, or or yeah or some sort of uh you know we're consortium hard.
0: yeah
2: very very hard to do yeah very hard
0: to do and the u.s wouldn't join in
2: <laughs> yeah. no we'd, we'd design it and then back
1: away
0: exactly <laughs> you, you even better it.
1: that's politics. thank you so much for coming to talk to us this has been absolutely fascinating for me because i know very little about economics which is why i've tried to keep my input to a minimum but it's been a true education listening to you and we are just so grateful to you for coming to talk to us so thank you very much yeah thank you very well, thank much you. thank you awesome. thank you thank you so
2: much for having me uh i've really enjoyed talking to you and and, and i hope some of what i said has
0: been useful it was absolutely fascinating it really was um it's it's so good to speak to somebody who speaks so well and fluently on such a complex topic thank you so much for your time
1: so that i can understand it <laughs> i have
0: no idea what time is it, what time it is where you are but i'm guessing it's not half past six in the evening thank you very much for either getting up early or staying up late for us um brilliant uh... oh no
2: it's midday here it's oh is it Monday. midday now all
0: oh, right okay it's midday right well go and have some lunch and I will. um thank you very much for your time harriet this was this was excellent these will all be as good as this at least um and so we'll do the, the, the quick health warning that we always do. Uh, this is not advice, and uh, you should not take it as advice if you if you could get some advice out of what we've said today. Uh, <laughs> but this is a conversation between three people talking about tax. Thank you very much. Oh,
2: I, and If I may interject, uh, my views are my own. Uh, they are not that of the IMF or its board.
0: Thank you very much, Thornton. It was lovely to speak to you, and I hope that we bump into you again at a conference or – If you have anything that you actually want to talk about on a podcast rather than us asking you, feel free to reach out to us. We will find time for you.
2: Come back again. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: So much.